One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Sophie Ellis-Bexter and welcome to Spinning Plates, the podcast where I speak to busy working women who also happen to be mothers about how they make it work. I'm a singer and I've released seven albums in between having my five sons aged 16 months to 16 years, so I spin a few plates myself. Being a mother can be the most amazing thing, but can also be hard to find time for yourself and your own ambitions. Hello. I want to be a bit nosy Happy and see how other Jubilee people balance stuff. everything. Uh, Welcome to Spinning Friday Plates. Friday lunchtime and yeah, I've, uh, I've sort of dipped in and out of Jubilee things. There's a street party on Sunday. What's the weather going to be like? I mean, I suppose it's quite fun to take the kids along, isn't it? It's funny because we've just come back from a boating trip for half term and we saw so much Jubilee things, including Windsor Castle. Uh, so obviously kids all waved to the Queen on the way up and on the way back, Mickey, my three-year-old, was naked and he did a very special sort of body dance facing Windsor Castle, especially for Her Majesty. Uh, it wasn't a political statement. He's just three and likes to do that kind of thing. Anyway, how are you getting on? I'm feeling, I'm feeling pretty good. A little bit wiped. Can I be very boring? I have some sort of weird sinusy cough cold thing that I've had for nearly two weeks and it's really starting to annoy me. You know what it's like. Obviously with a cold, you're not like, there's not seriously anything wrong with you. But colds are just that thing where you're trying to do all the things you normally do, but you just can't quite forget about it. I've never had one quite like this before. I wake up in the morning and it's like my whole face hurts. What is that? Is it sinusitis? Maybe. I've never had it before. I suppose I should be excited to be experiencing a new ailment. Well, anyway, I've had enough of it now. It's been five days of this particular phase of the cold. Anyway, sorry, I told you it was boring. And what else is happening? I can hear Richard in the studio. He's listening to live mixes of the tour that we did because I think we're going to put it all together and bring that out at some point on a final album so that's quite fun I say it's fun it means I'm listening to him listening to my voice which I 
find very difficult to listen through. I'm not very good at listening to mixes because it's got me in it. What is it about our own voices that means we don't like hearing them recorded and played back? That's strange, isn't it? And this afternoon I've got a gig. I'm off to Witchwood Festival where I'm playing alongside Boney M. So that's exciting. I think that'll put me in a good mood. So I'll pack my sparkly bits in a little while and get myself all ready. And then this weekend I've got the kids by myself this weekend because Rich has got another festival on Saturday and another one on Sunday and I haven't, I'm home. So that's fine, we'll be fine. So long as the sun is shining, we can get out and about and do some stuff for the end of half term. And it's funny because this boating holiday was really cute. Like we had lots of fun, but we also always seem to time it where one of our kids is at an age where they're sort of slightly like growing out of it. That's what it feels like anyway. So Kit, who's 13, was struggling a little bit with the concept of essentially camping on water with his family 24 hours a day for four days consecutively. He was quite happy to get home. But, of course, he also had fun. He jumped in the river and swam about. We did some late-night playground action in a local park when it was just the kids, which was quite cute. We had some yummy food. We poodled about. He got to do a bit of steering. Uh, even Mickey was quite into the locks. And Jesse and Ray, they had a little bit of swimming time too. And it was all very nuts in May, which is Mike Lee film, which if you haven't seen it, go and watch it because it's one of my favourite films. And in Nuts in May, it's about Candice Marie and Keith, her husband, and they go on a very earnest camping trip in the UK. So it's set in the, I think it was done in the 70s, sort of mid-70s. And so whenever Richard and I do a half-term break with the kids in May, we always think of it as our Nuts in May holiday. <laughs> it very much is. Anyway, I'm sure you're already tiring of my slightly bunged up voice so i will get on to this week's podcast guest which is uh brought about by a documentary i saw on the bbc iplayer it's not very long i think it's about 25 minutes long and it's called a mother's brain and i was intrigued and i watched it and it's completely fascinating it's about all the changes that go on neurologically socially emotionally physically hormonally when you become a mother or primary carer or basically when you begin raising a child so it talks about all the different stages and how some things affect you know whether or not you know you're the person who gave birth to baby this you can still be affected neurologically and other stuff is about the natural uh, social and emotional changes that happen when you're a mother and I found like I for me I thought the documentary articulated a lot of emotions I felt when I became a mum I wasn't able to articulate I thought, yes, no wonder it's such a big deal. It's affecting you on sort of all aspects of your, your sense of self, really. So I looked up who'd made the documentary and the woman who presented it. She's called Melissa Hoganboom. And then I found her book uh, called The Motherhood Complex and started reading that. And I just sent an email out into the ether to Melissa and said, I'd really love to talk to you. I should say it's an email. It wasn't an email. I remember now I DM'd her on Instagram. Uh... I've got a bad habit of sliding into DMs if I want to introduce, interview people for the podcast. It's a good job my teenage children aren't around to hear me say sliding into DMs because I know they would have cringed and laughed at me saying that. And I do understand that normally the context of that is different. <laughs> um, but anyway, Melissa got back to me and came round and we had a really fascinating chat. She's a really exciting thinker and has that wonderful ability to take lots of bits of information sort of um scientific and uh, lots of different studies and then clarify it into a way that makes the information really 
open and, you know, easy and digestible because even though she's super smart, she obviously has a generosity about her that makes her want... She wants other people to get excited about what she's learning about too, which is what all the best teachers are like, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, we had a lovely chat and now you can listen to it and uh, I will sit back and... I might not go for a cup of tea, actually, this summer. I might go for just a hot drink. I think I just need something a bit herbal and boring just to kind of try and soothe me a little. And I'll see you on the other side. All right, see you in a bit. So why don't we start with the here and now, Melissa? What are you up to at the moment? What's what's going on with you? I am... What am I up to? Um, (laughs) Right now I'm making quite a lot of films for my team at BBC Real. So making a really interesting piece about the science of nature nurture. So what part of our um, behaviour is defined by our genetics and what part is defined by the um, way we grew up. And scientists look at that using twin studies and it's actually really fascinating and it's got me thinking a lot about the way I'm um, raising my children actually because there's there's a lot of research that shows um, genetic genetic twins raised apart are more alike than fraternal siblings raised together. So that shows the genetics has such a huge role wow. in how children grow up. So even, so you, you know, two of your boys would be like more more different than say genetic twins who are not raised in the same household wow um, and so in some sense it kind of justifies like you, we often say you know our children are who they are and they'll be mm. who they be and parents often think we can mold them into how we want them to be and it's actually really really reassuring like of course we have a really important role we teach them a lot of things we give them a lot of structure but we can't mold them into being who we want them to be and i think that helps me as a parent so even, yes. even though this film is not about parenting at all actually researching it has been really um, helpful just on a personal level as well. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And actually, I think it's a sort of... If I'd had to uh, come to my own conclusion, I would have come to the same one, but I think it took me uh, getting it wrong over the years to understand that. Because Mm. I think especially with my first, you're putting so much emphasis on what you notice about them and like, oh, that's a little bit you and that's a little bit me and what about if we do this, that and the other and... I think, you know, you think a lot about your own childhood and the the things that were formative and you think, I want to give you the same tools so that you can reach the point where, you know, you feel good about everything and, yeah, and then you soon realise, actually, what am I doing? They're not not me. They're not a miniature version of me. This is a new person and they have a new take on things and I have to just be a bit more reactive. But... um, that's good for taking the pressure off. A yeah, bit, I, think. I think that's what the scientist interviewed said. Parents of one child are environmentalists. Parents of two children are geneticists. Because you realise, oh wow, my second child is so different. Um, and then, like, like my daughter sometimes says things like, "I'm like, why don't you wear this today? You know, it's a, it's a nice day, it's a celebration." She goes, "I will want, I will wear what I want because I know what I know." And I'm like, "Fair enough." So oh, like, like, she's that. got this really strong idea of what she wants, <laughs> and actually, I, I try and respect that, even though it can be really difficult. Yes, I know, yeah. that's the thing, you're like encouraging this spirited independence and then yeah. suddenly it comes back at you in spades, you're like, yeah, a exactly. little, little bit too spirited, a yeah. little bit too independent. Um, so the reason I wanted to speak to you is because I watched, well, I've, I've been reading your book and I've I watched your documentary, um, which was Mother's Brain, and I found it so completely fascinating. And you, through your book and the documentary, have articulated a lot of things I felt without being able to articulate any of them. Um, 
so yeah, I want to really... What came first in terms of the science? Were you always interested in how motherhood affects people? Not at all, um, actually. I'm, I'm a science journalist by background, so I've been reporting on science for a lot of many years and I've always wanted to write a book. Lots of journalists want to. Um, but it wasn't until I'd had my second and I was three months in, so he was three months old, and I was like, why is no one writing about how overwhelming and strange this is? And I, it's like I needed to articulate as well what I was experiencing. And then I thought there must be um, a lot of science that explains how mothers feel this shifting identity and when one side takes over. Um, and then the more I looked into it, I found there was loads of stuff that backed it up from brain st- science to biological changes to social expectations. And I was like, wow, okay, I really, I really want to write about this to validate um, what mothers like myself are experiencing. And it was actually surprisingly easy to write because every little research paper I found or every scientist I spoke to just opened up this understanding. I was like, oh, okay, this is why it felt so overwhelming coming back to work. This is why... I, I really struggled when I became a mother, not not in terms of mental health. Like, I loved it. I loved being um, a parent. But I definitely had these two competing identities. And I don't know if it's because, you know, I'd always identified as a journalist, as someone who's ambitious. And then suddenly I had this child and people saw me in a different light that I might have seen myself. And that's fine in many instances. But it's not when one, how people see you is different than how you see yourself. And that often happens in motherhood. So, you know, you're just mother. or Oh, you're a mum now. You've got different ideas. Or you might not get invited to the same events. And they're all like small, small instances over your day or your week. But they add up. And it's why mothers often feel kind of overwhelmed or why they lose their sense of self a little bit. Yeah, completely. And I think, like you, my overwhelming feeling about being a mother is really positive but I still found all these strands that made me feel like the edges have been knocked off me a little bit and that you have to sort of re refine those edges again and sort of set out your stall again and I think yeah with your books it's called motherhood complex it feels like you've sort of taken all these many nuanced things to, to, depending on whether it's physiological neurological um you know physical changes or perception and you know cultural things and how what we how we think of what a mother should be what a parent should be um and it's really fascinating and it's brilliant to have it all in one place and I love your very sort of pragmatic clear way of looking at it all so you just distill it all in this way that's never you'll have your your personal take on it but it also doesn't ever feel like it's being sentimental or it's just kind of like quite a clear, I suppose, very scientific mm-hmm. approach of just, okay, yeah, that explains that and that makes sense of that. And the reason why I was then not traumatised by those events is because actually I had these elements mm-hmm. that weren't <laughs> part of that. But I think it's so brilliant. It's like really real clarity in that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's why I try to. I always try to bring an evidence-based approach to the way I was writing it, both because then you can understand it from a factual point of view. It's okay, well, this is you know, not only validates your experience, but actually there's evidence to show why we feel the way we do, but also just to dispel some of the myths or the, like, like the, the opening chapter and what the documentary was called about, the mum brain. I was so frustrated at how motherhood or when you're pregnant or when you're a new mum, we like diminish our competency. We're like, oh, it's mum brain or, oh, you know, I'm just a bit, a bit tired because, you know, pregnancy brain. And I was like, wait a minute. Like, I, I felt like I was overachieving after I became a mother, maybe because of some of the expectations. Um, and I felt like my brain was really clear. And obviously I was tired some of the time. And then it was just amazing to find out that the neuroscience 
shows that our brain is actually being optimized in these really beneficial ways um, during pregnancy and motherhood, and it's lasting. And if, if you if you look at brain science, that's not particularly surprising. Like you're a musician, your brain will probably look different to a non-musician because you've specialized in a way that you know it makes your neurons optimize. It's like it's like when you weed a garden, you you know you keep the good things and weed out the bad. That's what's happening in your brain a little bit. Your the neurons that you're needing are getting strengthened. Um, and so that really happens in a, a, a huge way in the shift to motherhood. So much so that if you scan the brains of non-mothers and mothers, you can actually see the difference, which wow. is amazing. And so rather than think of the mum brain as something detrimental, it's actually something to, you know, celebrate and to, to I think, something we can, we know we're, we're optimised for motherhood in a way that's beneficial for us. And it means that, um, you know, we, we're doing more than ever before and what I really always want to get across in this is it's not just biology in this instance um, it's so of course when we're pregnant our brain or our body is being primed for motherhood but the, the there's a huge important part from experience as well and it shows why um, you know same-sex male parents also have like different brain changes that occur or um, non-biological parents um, and that I think that's really important to highlight because there's so much expectations put on mothers to be the biological carer this is what we're meant to do this is what we're made for and that's actually a quite an it can be quite a negative um, it, uh, attitude if you're then put into this hole that this is what you're made for because then you will do more and you'll be the more of the primary carer and you'll do more of the mental load um, but actually you know anyone can do a lot of the things that mothers do and your brain will adapt. It's just biology sometimes gives us gives us a bit of a head start. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. That whole thing about the primary caregiver and how your brain adapts just purely by spending time with your child is really important to, for people to, to hear because, as you say, so much of that expectation of mothers to take on mother load is, is cultural and passed down. And I suppose we're still dealing with so much in terms of... It's very recent that women have felt able to be pregnant publicly, uh, adapt their workplace to suit the fact that, that they have, are raising a young family, that the aspects of it that are... We haven't quite got to the bit where we can then delegate again because we're so busy still trying to make sure we've got that all how we need it mm. first. Absolutely. And part of that is because women are judged for things in a way that men just aren't. Like there's really interesting studies to show that like if you go into um, a room that's messy and it's attributed to Jennifer, you judge her personality traits or if it's John, you don't. And that's kind of just shows and, you know, people people expect certain things of women that they don't of men and that filters down to the carer level and in the workplace as well. And there's there's a reason there's still a, a motherhood penalty, that's what sociologists call it, the fact that women's earnings um, decline as soon as they become children, if you look at the average and the graphs and they never, never um, match up again. And so if you're constantly on a back foot, and sociologists also call this, they call it a structural lag. So society is aware of the inequalities. And by being aware of it, it's like, oh, you know, you know, we're aware that um, women are paid less. We're going to talk about it. But there's not actually that much being done. Mm. And there's still a lot of biases. Like, the, you know, women who are mothers are often, like, given a lower um, starting salary than non-mothers. There's, there's, you know, studies that show that and they're judged as being less ambitious, less competent, less focused and there's no evidence that shows they are and, you know, like I, I would argue that when you have a finite time you actually can be much more productive. Like I know I have a 
to leave at five to do the pickup. So I make sure I hit my deadlines and get my, my job done. Um, and I do, and I, I never struggle with that. But yet, I think the reason why many people feel that kind of competing or negative clash on their identity is because they're aware of these expectations. Like a journalist friend of mine was like, oh, I'm not going to um, tell my team I'm pregnant yet because they won't give me the big stories. And I'm like, well, that's not how it should be. They're like, yeah, but it's just it just is. It's how it is. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, I mean, even just sort of laying it all out like that sounds exhausting and like a little bit of a hand on your forehead when you're trying to move forward. And as you say, I think part of the reason why I loved having these conversations is because of how the moment I became a mother, it did change my relationship with work really significantly in terms of making me actually like sort of focus my ambition a bit more and just made me think, well, if I'm going to spend time away from my baby, it's got to count. I don't want to come home having just not really done very much of my day. It's got to be, have a bit more value to it. So I feel like I sort of edited a lot of stuff out, you know? Yeah. But sometimes I, that's detrimental too. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think I did the same. I didn't want it to define me, which is why I felt like mixed about writing about it because I was like, oh, I'm writing about the very thing I don't want to define me. I don't feel it so strongly now. It's like almost embracing it's helped. Um, but I think I became more ambitious um, after I became a mother as well because I was determined to prove that that wouldn't affect me but I think that's quite unhealthy and I think that's a, a cultural pressure it's mm. like the culture expects you to not come back full-time to take a full year off to to then not want a promotion or not want to work overtime and so I was like no I'm going to prove them wrong I'm do this but I was kind of denying the fact that my life had hugely changed I was exhausted I wasn't sleeping but I just pretended everything was fine um, and it you know it did get easier when my daughter started sleeping more um, but I, def I definitely felt I had to like put on this brave face and I wish now that I'd known what I know now and I could be like, no, you know, you, I, you can be vulnerable. It's important to show that not only just for yourself, but also for younger colleagues or people who don't have that experience, because until you explain it or tell people about it, they, they don't know what you're going through. Yeah. And also the energy you'd need to put into getting, making changes happen at that time. That's like the last, that's so far down your priority list to have the energy to say actually I think this isn't quite right how this is set up you know you're too busy adjusting to new motherhood and then by the time you've got past it and feeling better about stuff um it's all a bit of a blur <laughs> I know it's 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 all such a blur but I think I'm sure that that must be evolutionary right like why would you have a second child if you remember how crazy the first one was or a third or a fourth yeah I know it's interesting all of that when you were saying when you found your mum's diaries that which that so that the chronology so you wrote you started writing your book when your second was little is that right or researching it yeah 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 and then after you'd finished your book is that when you did the more of the documentaries yeah I, I think writing it and telling my mum about it unlocked memories for her and then she started sharing kind of um screenshots of her diaries but it was it was actually a, a really supportive boss when I came back to work and I was really open about the fact that I'd written this book on mat leave and I wasn't quite finished so I came Which, back by the way it's pretty impressive myself <laughs> isn't it I've, just, I've, I've, been on I've also written a book would you have to read it it's a really complex very research book <laughs> let's just say I didn't go to any mum groups didn't meet up with anyone <laughs> was um in almost isolation before the pandemic happened came back to work in 2020 oh. and then six weeks later I was uh, working at home again but my um my boss Mary she's called she she's a mother as well but she um 
was really interested in my book and encouraged me as soon as I mentioned it she's like oh we should do a documentary about that and I didn't think that would be allowed because you know like obviously journalists often write books but you're not if you work at the BBC you're not meant to promote your books too obviously you're allowed to talk about them but you know she was like you've done this research for a whole year and it's it's a unique angle so we should make a film about it so she encouraged me to do it and gave me the freedom and headspace um, and then because I commission films for my own team and I'm in charge of the commissioning it's kind of up to me how to use my time um, as long as I'm, you know, all the other work's getting done. And so it was just amazing during, like, lockdown to be able to do this documentary and, like, I had to piece it all together by finding filmmakers in different countries, getting them to the, the experts. I only did one bit of travelling, which was going back to the Netherlands to um, see my mum, and it was actually my director, Pierangelo, he's called, he's a brilliant creative genius, who said, oh, let's just tease the fact that she's your mother and not mention it to the end, because, you know, you've got a reason to speak to her. She's She's been writing about motherhood 30 years ago, and what was so interesting about it, she felt the similar pressures that I did, so she was training to be a GP, had to stop her training when she got pregnant, and she was like, how can I just be a mum and not a doctor? How can I combine these two things? And that's the exact feeling when I first came back to work, but I couldn't quite articulate it. I was like, how can I, how can my two identities collide? Because I felt they were split and I was keeping them separate because we have such a different home working life, a home life and a work life. Those are two very different spheres and they don't align, especially in the UK. You know, we are kind of applauded when we work overtime it's encouraged it's seen as a marker of success um we value ourselves based on our work and our jobs and our home life is not respected um which is very different to the netherlands where people clock off at five and if you're staying late they're like well, why haven't you gotten all your work done today are you not you know working hard enough so it's just a it's a very different um that's actually cultural. a massive different thing isn't it yeah it's just a huge cultural expectation and it you know it filters down into happiness as well and uh, gender equality in the mental load like if you've got the higher earner and I know you spoke at this in your podcast before if you've got the higher earner coming home later because they you know they have more of a responsibility to earn money for the family then who's going to not prioritise their career the lower earner and that statistically is usually the woman mm. so coming up against all these things I think it's just so it's so challenging and therefore so important to talk about it with your colleagues your team your bosses and that's why managers also have to understand that which is like now that I'm in a, a position where I, I manage a team I'm so aware of what people have or the important the, the important how important it is to respect what people have going on whether they're carers whether they have um, you know other things that take up a significant amount of time you need to give people space to live because people aren't just working uh, living to work living to work they're uh, you know also working to live and I think the pandemic has reset that a little bit yeah I, I think uh, you know it, it's also as you said it's not just about if the life outside of it is is family it could be you know your your hobbies your pets anything that's in your life that's that's significant that you need to give space to to make you actually work better and be focused on work when you're there and then have time for that you know that that balance is really really important and actually I would say that yeah is it did you say his name Pierre Pierangelo Pierangelo yeah. I think the the fact that he didn't say about it being your mum in the documentary means that this really moving bit I'm trying to remember what you, as you ask your mum you say something like was it was it were you glad you became a mum yeah 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 and she just touched cups your face and says <laughs> like oh darling it's the best thing ever and I was like oh I didn't realize yeah. and it's it's really moving but also the fact that there's you know, you were reading her diaries written 30 years before your motherhood started and yet there's so much that resonates and so much of that time when you're just thinking, hang on a minute, how do I, 
how do I anchor this? And what is happening to me? And is this normal? And I just love the fact that there might be better conversations that go around it about the significance. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Can I ask you something? With, with the brain change, mm-hmm. is that something that, that stays? Mm-hmm. Okay. I think, well, the, the studies are so emerging, but they found that two years later it was still, uh, you could still notice it. So they haven't, I think they're working on the follow-up scans, but that suggests that it is long-lasting. Um, but you know, you know, science is still to come out of that, and I, I reckon your brains continue to change as your children yeah. grow up. And then, um, but yeah, it was. It's. I think the benefits you feel from that kind of hyper optimization continue. And some of this stuff would be things like in pregnancy. I mean, I'm trying to remember what I read, but that the, your your ability to empathise grows. Is that yes, right? that's what they, the the changes they found were in areas important for empathy and theory of mind, so understanding the. Um, the thoughts and process of others because you have to switch to you know caring only for yourself to suddenly knowing where the food is knowing when someone's hungry being attuned to their cry like this study that show you know you become more attuned to a baby's cry as soon as you become a mother you, your hormone activation intensifies especially to your own baby's cry um, and so your emotional um, effect is just hyper attuned um, and that's so important I mean you see with um, women who suffer from postpartum depression lose that ability so it just shows that um the support is so i mean this is a different slightly different topic but the support that enables them to be the mothers they need to be is so important to that mother-child bond yeah um, which is why i think recognizing it and recognizing the signs of um a good bond and having a supportive community and family is yeah. so so vital because you know it's the next generation they're not just a baby you're not just a mother it's it's like it's huge it is and i think i mean i agree the the 
postpartum depression is obviously its own conversation, but I suppose that all falls under this umbrella of just significant things happen and you're going to feel this whole realm of emotions. Um, some of it you might be anticipating and quite a lot you just won't be. And I mean, I remember I was lucky that I had my mum just down the road when I had my baby. I, I wanted to be a mum. I was very happy to, to have Sunny, but um, I still found it really isolating. I felt, I felt you had quite alone. quite early, didn't you? So I had him, I was just past my 25th birthday, and the, but I also had him, yeah, two months earlier. I was supposed to have him in June and he came in April. Oh, so I missed out a fair bit. I didn't have, um, I'd signed up to a, a kind of NCT type thing, but the classes hadn't started yet. Mm. So I hadn't met anybody else that was having a baby um, at the same time as me and none of my friends had kids. So a lot of that was quite different. Yeah. And, um, and I, I think as well, because I was coming from music where I didn't feel, I felt at the time that there was a bit of a, what's the word, looking a bit down their nose at, at the fact that I was about to be a mum. It would be, oh, well, you're not going to be able to, you know, good luck with keeping going with the singing mm -hmm. because you're going to have a crying baby at home and you're going to be changing nappies now. It's not going to be singing and putting on your nice frocks and wearing heels. And I just thought, oh, is this it? I'm, I'm frumpy at 25 and that's it's sort of game over for lots of stuff. Um, and I think, you know, I think people feel like that in maybe in not such an extreme way because it's not so closely related to their day job, but just that sense of who you are and what, what you might have lost and where you, yeah, where, where are the edges of you now? What am I supposed to be doing now that I'm a mum? That I'm not, I think for me, the place I always think of weirdly is soft play because <laughs> a soft play is for me the place where I feel the least oh of my myself. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm just sat at one of those plastic tables with a little pair of shoes next to me, trying to spot my child running through tunnels. It's noisy. And I just feel like, what? What is? Where, where am I? You know, like spin the globe. There am I. Sat, yeah. Like, I feel like I've just lost all sense of yeah. the and things that make me feel like me. I think I think that's so. That's such a good analogy. And every like a lot of mothers I've spoke to have felt this as well. But most people don't talk about it, or or they don't know how to articulate it because I think it's so expected. Like you're expected to become a mother. You know, little girls are marketed dolls from a very young age in a way that boys aren't. aren't it's increasing, but not as much. Um, my daughter's even said to me, oh, mummy, when I am bigger, I want to be a mummy. I want to have breasts and your bras. Like, it's so, like, it's the, we're in such a gendered world. So if you think about how early it starts, these expectations of the caring roles we'll have, so then we, when we do become mothers, there's an, also, like, this idea that we should just, well, you know, you chose it, so enjoy it, and this is you now. Whereas we have a whole other life before motherhood that you can't just forget about or hide. And mm. I think that's where this, why this clash can be so problematic because if you're expected to suddenly put everything before your child, including yourself and your own happiness, then that is like a huge um, risk factor for you know, lasting relationship dissatisfaction, unhappiness, mental ill health. So I actually, um, I always talk about how important it is to put yourself first and to understand what you need and what you want um, because it's important for your happiness and if you're happy your kid's going to be too so it's not about being selfish and not um, attuning to the needs of your child because obviously you will you'll be doing that and I think that I think that's really important to talk about more as well because there's that I think that element of self-sacrifice is so unhealthy um, because then and then like what would you what would you want your own children to think 
when they when they become parents do you want them to sacrifice themselves you would tell yeah. them no right so why would you be doing it for them and there's uh, an element of you know like we 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 are you know nurturing this new human we have to keep them alive but that does, doesn't mean you know that you you cease to exist so i think that's uh, that that's really helped me in my parenting for sure yeah i mean i think there's so many things i'm thinking about while you're saying all that i think going back to the gender stereotyping i think that's really dangerous as well because then it means you're basically into you've linked femininity and being a you know grown woman intrinsically with motherhood and I was thinking before you arrived about I've got loads of girlfriends that don't have children um and the majority are by choice that's just not something I wanted to do and then it's a question that comes up it's a thought process that they face it's conversations they have to have. And we've, we've made it so intrinsic to, well, that's obviously something you're going to want. And then if it's something that you are going to want, then, as you say, you've got to sacrifice a lot of yourself because that's the life that you wanted to have. And that's all really dangerous. But then I suppose the sort of final of the whole thing is that when you are a grown woman and you are raising the kids, you actually are trying to... I sometimes worry that I'm putting so much pressure to be across everything and then I'm like well how am I you know I've got five sons like am I saying to them you know when you if you partner up with a woman make sure she can be across everything like what am I trying to do you know what I mean where am I what am I what ideal am I trying to paint for them like what can I what can I let go what can what plates can I smash I guess it's it's so difficult though I think this is definitely tied to the mental load that's put on women even before they have children and to your point about um motherhood being expected like there was um i went to this talk where i think it was someone from the women's equality party said you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't mm. so you're judged if you don't become a mother and then if you do become a mother you you know your your idea of what you can achieve is also judged um but yeah the me- the mental load is such uh, another thing that's tied into what it means to like how we're conditioned and socialized and just in case listeners haven't come across it it's like the thinking about doing so the organizing the planning the thinking about the meals the doctor's appointments the nappy sizes the holidays and you can't it's invisible which is why it's called mental load and you can't switch it off you can take it to work and um it it often increases during the shift to motherhood um largely because of you know the lack of paid parental leave for fathers and then there's no handover so even in couples where you anticipate doing everything equally if you don't have a you know an actual conversation about it um, it's the person who stays at home that does the most because they know where the clothes are the nappies the children um, the the doctor's appointments because they've done it all and um, I remember there was this one instance I went to Berlin for um, a work thing and I'd left a list for my husband of what to feed the kids because I was just across all the meal things. And I'm like, I'm never going to do that again because until someone else learns, even by failure, they're not going to need to do it. Mm. And then it, cont- even, so it continu- continues to be your load. Another scenario is often like, oh yeah, the, the dad will take the kids on a play date. The mom will pack the bags and pack the snacks because they know, they're like, oh, don't forget this, don't forget that. And um, it's a time thing. So it's not, a, it's, it's never a thing where it's, often the fathers want to get involved but then there's also 
tied into that there's an element of maternal gatekeeping women are judged for ways that men are if they're child like if you're if your kid's hair is not brushed it's funny if the dad's brought him to school but you know oh if a mum does it I can't, can't believe they're not wearing matching socks and um so it's you, you see there's this double expectation and then if you're judged on how your kids turn out then of course you're going to take more care and control of it, which is why the mental load continues so there has to be a handover it has to be end to end and I think that's why that's part of why it can feel so exhausting and it ties into kind of the yeah it ties into all the things we've been discussing so now so how has your writing this book and doing how has it helped or what's it what's how's it changed your relationship with raising your kids it's definitely validated what I've experienced and it's made me let go like I call it the motherhood complex I've definitely feel that less like I I still don't fully feel like a mother if I'm honest like I still have this kind of slightly compartmentalized view of it like when I'm I'm when I'm with my kids I'm in the moment but when I'm at work I'm they, they feel a little bit abstract um but it's definitely like now I feel much more confident in the fact that it's not going to hold me back by talking about it um it's it's part of who I am but it's part of Ever, loads of people's experience and I think those early years is when the shift is so it's most dramatic and now you know it's just it's been part of everyday life for five years so it, it's and I talk about it a lot now right and I think that helps so people um know more about it and I think raising awareness is part of the first hurdle to making people understand that you know and I like when I I also remember one conversation I had with a colleague when I came back to work I was like oh I know it's ironic that I'm writing about it because the reason why is because I didn't want people to think of me as anything less and she's like oh I've never nobody thinks that and no one's ever thought that so it shows an element of it is in your it might just be in your mind as well so obviously like the societal expectations are definitely not in your mind but the feeling of needing to prove yourself like if you are you know if you're a respected employee with in a nice team you there's you don't necessarily need to go out above and beyond I definitely I think it's helped and it's made me want to write about it more and I've continued to write like columns about it and I do blogs and talks and I want to do follow-up books so I think I think it's definitely an area that is worth exploring yeah and it's so rich and there's there's all these you know studies and all this research but actually bring it on to, I suppose it's it all ties into the as I said before the sort of um you know the fact that it's still such an evolving place in terms of how we handle um parenthood motherhood and you know it makes me think a lot about um you know if I'm flicking through Instagram I think generally speaking new motherhood is so much more visible than it was when I had like 20 years ago now nearly when I had Sunny but at the same time there's so much of it that's still on a, such a pedestal and seems so hard to you know live up to so I think these conversations are so good for people to be able to understand that actually it's really complex and there's loads going on and this is why you might be experiencing this that and the other but uh, so I was reading your book in the studio last week and um it starts with what happened to you after you had your first baby which I read out loud to everybody in the room I mean I'm someone that I've got quite a strong, uh, I, I've sort of, I'm really interested in medical stuff and I've got quite a strong stomach. But what happened to you when you had your baby is pretty shocking, Melissa, I have to say. Yeah. It's, it's a good, it's a good story. <laughs> Bloody hell. Do you mind telling me again? Of course, so yeah. It was actually really therapeutic writing about it. Um, so yeah, I had a, an emergency C-section with my first. Um, it was very jolly, is that the right word? Probably not. But you know, like my water's broke and it, it, it was 
emergency in the sense that I was in labour um, and she was breached, so she was the wrong way around. Um, and the doctor's like, do you know what that means? I'm like, yeah, yeah, it means C-section. But it wasn't, it, it was, nobody was at risk. So my daughter yeah. was fine, I was fine. Um, so, you know, they still got her out in four minutes after, you know, I went in thinking I'd be sent home again because I was only three centimetres dilated. And then within half an hour, she was out. And like, I hadn't even told, like, I don't think I'd even told my family I was um, in labour. So suddenly, like, I text them all a baby photo and they were like, what? Wow. <laughs> she was a week early as well. Um, and then I went home and I had like this bulge, I'd say, um, and I was frantically Googling it in the way I do. And I was texting all my friends that had C-sections and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, it's normal to have a little bulge. That's fine. I was like, okay. And I remember the, it was four days afterwards. The midwife was due to come. And um, I was like, I better check because, you know, it feels a bit tight and sore. And then I went and had a shower and it just completely split open. Um, and I didn't, I think I just looked at, I mean, if you're eating, please look, <laughs> put <laughs> your food down away. Pasta I remember, look, look, yeah, I looked down just a tiny bit and I thought it was just pus coming out. And then my body just went into shock and I was like standing naked in the shower, just shaking. And I, I apparently had like just this really tiny little voice. And luckily my husband was right. We lived in a, uh, a flat at the time and he was in the kitchen which was really near the shower and he said he could just, just hear there was this urgency in my voice I was like Stephen please help um, and then he just said Melissa don't look and I was like just standing like hold he's like just don't look and I was just standing like on um, against the shower hop, with my head with my hands up just shaking um, it wasn't painful or anything but yeah like my That's insides quite an image for, for him <laughs> I think well I, I, he doesn't talk about it which is probably not healthy but yeah my insides had come out basically um, and so what, cool thing. Yeah, I'm so was, sorry. Uh, well, I mean, I'm fine. <laughs> I know you're fine, but that's quite. <laughs> but a it's thing. like like I can talk about it in a really like I don't feel like it was me. I, it's like I'm like telling a story of a film I've seen or something. Um, and then the paramedic came within. I think they made my husband stay on the line. Like when it's serious, they make you stay on the line. And he came within eight minutes. But then it was a Friday night. So the ambulance took really long to come. And like they, nobody had ever seen anything like it. They were just not. They didn't know what to do. <laughs> They were just like, um, uh, just try and yeah. And they, luckily, I hadn't sat and down. Luckily, wasn't yeah. Luckily, I wasn't wearing clothes, so it didn't touch anything because yeah. I was standing up. But they, he just and it was one of those bath showers, so I couldn't easily get out of it. Um, but he just like wrapped me, wrapped, wrapped me with this um, clinical gauze stuff, and then yeah, and then I just remember coming in in an ambulance I just remember being really worried about my daughter she was only four days old and I my milk had just come in I was breastfeeding and I just kept saying to the ambulance but what about my baby <laughs> but he um my husband just grabbed everything from the hospital bag that had just been unpacked and we all came to the ambulance together and yeah I was just lying on this bed for three hours while they called this emergency bowel surgeon on a Friday night out of his bed or whatever and at midnight they finally operated I think they needed a they needed like a, a special, a specialist bowel surgeon and an obstetrician because you know, nobody had seen anything like it, and they weren't sure, and they had to investigate. There was nothing wrong, um, but yeah, they just—it was just so surreal. Um, wasn't wasn't that painful at the time? But I just remember my husband didn't know what to do because my daughter was breastfed and he didn't have any milk and she started crying and he was like wandering around the hospital in the dark with a newborn and no one. Like people are like, what? Where is the mother? Why are you? <laughs> so he, I think he was quite traumatized by the whole experience. And luckily, someone like I think the surgery took a couple of hours, and someone called him, and then they were like, "You're fine." I was like, "Great." Um, and it was obviously a long recovery because I had two surgeries in four days. Um, but yeah, I healed. I healed amazingly, and I don't. 
I think because, and that's why I investigated kind of the psychological aspects of it, because the event wasn't linked to my daughter's well-being and I didn't perceive myself to be like at risk. I kind of thought, oh, this is really, really bad. But I, I didn't link it with the birth, so I didn't have like a, a psychological effect of it because, you know, they offered me counselling and I was like, actually, because she's fine, I've been fine. Um, like it would have been a different story if like they, they literally made me sign a document saying you might have to have to need a stoma, you know, if we can't fix you, which is when you have, um, you know, a, a poo bag, I think they're called. And there's a lot more awareness of it. If you can imagine like being told that before you go yeah. into surgery. So, it, it, yeah, it was it's, it's very traumatic and it definitely affected it um, going into a C-section the second time. But because I told the doctors what happened, they gave me like extra care and I had like a top surgeon doing the second C-section. And so I wasn't worried it would happen again. It was more like, oh, I don't want to be cut open again, really. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's very much part of your scientific approach to then research that why is it that I seem to be able to talk about this now? But actually that whole chapter about... um, this, you know, the trauma that can be associated with birth. And I think, I, I actually think there's a whole thing in that just on its own because I know so many women that have had really quite significant health implications and it's just a little bit swept under the carpet and maybe not really spoken about that much. It sounds like your level of care was very good and it's brilliant that they took all that on board when you were having your second baby. But I feel for some people that maybe they're... Um, any complications had a little are a little bit more commonplace. Um, it's not really spoken about in the same way, and they're just sort of left like, "Well, your baby's here," and you get you know, especially women who had babies in the last couple of years, they just had their six weeks checked on the phone, like, "Are you okay?" And you know, we don't really have that thing of keeping an eye on new mums in in the way that maybe you know you would have if they'd had any other, you know, if they operationed all these things that happened in any other way other than childbirth. Quite yeah. extraordinary. It's, yeah, it's 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 awful, really, because it's huge. It's like even if you have a what you call a standard vaginal delivery, like there can be so many painful experiences, or when no one tells you what's going on, and um, and that's that's a huge trigger for you know stress and anxiety and lasting effects years later, um, and just an awareness of what might happen. I think like I, I like you, I sign up to those classes, and um, I did hypnobirthing, of course, because you know it was trendy I thought that sounded great (laughs) it sounded great and actually it did help me with the breathing when I was in the ambulance I was like and and when I was having contractions I was in a taxi to hospital and um I just apparently just closed my eyes it was really painful but it it didn't help with the pain which is what it said it would but it it meant I could just be be calm but I don't know if that's very helpful but I, I think yeah the expectation of like um the fact that you know everyone does it so you'll be fine I mean lots of women died in childbirth before yeah. medical intervention so it's really it's like a huge dangerous undertaking and uh, recognizing that before during and after is just it's so important for the well-being but yeah, I think um a lot of people that have like post-traumatic stress disorder they say they felt like diminished as like everything's about the child not about the mom um and it's it's it can be really challenging to then come to terms with that and feel like you want to be looked after as well but you don't you know the baby comes first and I mean, even like, even though I was well looked after, I didn't go back to the same hospital. Um, they almost admitted, they kind of admitted it was a mistake. Like essentially they just didn't sew up the right bit. And so it had just like those three layers when you have a C-section that they sew up and the, the 
first layer had come apart, or the, was it the second layer? Anyway, one layer had come apart, but they couldn't really tell because once it's gone, it's gone. Um, but they, d they did really want to find the right answers, but then every step of the process, there was like sent to the wrong person for the feedback and then the doctor wasn't there and it was just it's just such a mess and I think you, you know like it's obviously the NHS is under a huge um it, it's it's not an easy problem to solve because the infrastructure is mm. really it's a lot of strain there, yeah and the, the people that are there are so amazing and they really care um but then it's I think the fact that women are just left to it. But I think it comes down to the expectations as well. It's like, you're, like remember those tapes I was listening to? It's like, your body was made, your body knows what to do. Your body was made for it. My body didn't know what to do. My <laughs> body didn't know the baby was breech. I had no idea what like water's breaking would look like. It didn't look like in the movies for one. Like it didn't, it just like trickled out initially. And, you know, over the next few hours, it just kept, water kept coming out. There wasn't like this big splash. Um, and I, I didn't want to know too much about labour before going in it because of the hypnobirthing. I was like, I don't want to hear any horror stories. I just want to keep it positive. But actually, I think it would have helped knowing a bit of the, the truth because then um, when it happens, you might feel more, you know, ready to deal with it. I don't know how you, how you felt when you, if you, you said your first was very premature. Yeah, I, I missed out on labour. I never had labour with any of mine because I had the first two, um, two months early. And I was had something called preeclampsia both times. And I, for a little while, was completely fascinated by labour. I used to watch all of One Born Every Minute and just think, could I have done this? Could mm -hmm. I have coped with that? How would I have fared? Um, and I think, you know, all the pregnancy books were so caught up with, you know, the final chapter is labour and birth. You know, that's like the big, the big ending, isn't it? And, you know, I basically just missed the last couple of chapters and I just felt really unfinished like I'd missed some really significant punctuation and like you my body definitely didn't I thought I was I, I mean I was quite glad when I had diagnosis because I thought I was maybe just really rubbish at being pregnant <laughs> I looked bad I felt bad it's hard yeah hard. especially with the first I, I felt like I got a bit better at it and a bit more confident funnily enough with pregnancy and with what I was capable of but that first one I got really puffy uh, I got, got lots of headaches just just felt a bit meh, which I now know part of it was the preeclampsia, but at the time I just thought, oh, I, I always wanted to be a mum and, uh, and I'm actually really not very good at this. This, <laughs> isn't, this isn't my thing. So, yeah, I did find that really um, a bit of a disappointing start, really, in terms of that. Um, and then, you know, you worry a bit about, well, has the stress of what I've been through... I was dealing with quite a lot of stress with, with work and a personal situation while I was pregnant, and I was like, well, is, was that bad for my baby? And then, you know, how does that affect everything too? So it, it's, yeah, it's probably part of the reason why, again, why I love having these conversations because I think at the time I, I can make sense of a lot more, a lot of it a lot more better now than I could could back then. So, you know, sort of reaching back to yourself really and yeah. um, giving yourself a bit of a hand up. But your, your book um, introduced me to a couple of new terms, my favourite of which is matrescence. So for people who don't know, can you tell us what that yeah. is? Matrescence is the birth of a mother. So we focus on um, childbirth as, you know, the new child coming into the world, which is obviously what actually happens. But a mother is born as well, right? Like on your first child's birthday, that was also the time that you became a mother for the first time. Obviously, it starts a lot earlier in pregnancy. Um, but it's the recognition that you are suddenly you know, this new person in one way as well, for better or for worse. Like, you're no longer 
um, the first time you have a child, you're no longer the just the Melissa who who is an independent person. You are suddenly um, someone is dependent on you, and recognizing that that is uh, a new beginning, I think, is really important because it it's you can then recognize the challenges that come with it, um, and it I think it again ties into the things about mental um, well being and recognizing the huge change because when you recognize it rather than oh well you know you know half some you know half the world's population might become mothers or are mothers or have the potential to be um so why is why am i any different actually it's you know like you're suddenly birthing a new human into the world so recognizing as extraordinary that your experiences are valid i think really helps you come to terms with it um and i think that that definitely did for me as well yeah, no, I, th- I agree with you. Like I said, your book sort of articulated things I didn't really know I was feeling, but like put it all in one place. Like, aha, yeah, of course. It's a really big deal in every every direction. Yeah. And the other term I'd never... Well, I'd heard a little bit about it, but I didn't know about it properly. And I'm probably going to say it wrong, but is it microchimerism? Yes, microchimerism. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Damn it. I knew I'd say it wrong. My- so say it again. Microchimerism. Right, group. Microchimerism. Right, yeah. I put the emphasis on my word and I did the wrong vowel sound as well. <laughs> oh, I, lo- oh, I love this. It's, diff- it's complicated. So a chimera is like from Greek mythology, so something that's two, two creatures. Um, I love this finding because it like there's this research that shows that anyone who has been pregnant, whether or not the pregnancy comes to term, has bits of their child's DNA in their blood, body, brain for life. So they did these brain scans of these women in their 80s and they could um, recognize fetal, male fetal DNA in their brains. So they, um, because, because the male carries the xy you can recognize it you can recognize the woman's one and it's what's even cooler is it's bi-directional so you um would have your first child's fetal dna floating all around your body even in your breast milk it kind of goes to scar if you um women who've had c-sections you they can find it in the scarring so it might help with healing and then your second child might have some of the dna of your first child because it kind of transcends um, and they don't really know why it happens, but they think it could be all these linked to all these positive things, like helping. Um, they 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 said you know women who had it had le- less instances of Alzheimer's. It could help with um, prevent certain types of cancer, but in other areas it caused it not caused, but it was found more prevalent in certain cancers. So there could be like they they scientists call it like a tug of war in your body. And you can kind of imagine why this is. Pregnancy is such a huge undertaking. It's like your baby is taking all your resources on your body and it can be massively damaging. So there's these like positive bits of DNA. They're giving you a helping hand in one sense, mm. but they could be toxic on another sense. Um, but it's just, it, it, what, what to me, it was like, oh, wow, okay, so there's a part of my baby's DNA that lives on, in me forever. Um, and I found that really kind of quite poetic. It is. I mean, what's, how might, do they know how that might actually change you? They don't. They think there's loads of different hypotheses. So it might influence your psychological well-being. It might be beneficial for breast milk for healing properties. It might um, help against cancer. It might contribute to some cancers, different ones. They found links right. with different ones. So there's and it goes into all different parts of your body um, at different stages. So they, it's such an emerging area of research. 
Um, and there's quite you know small group of scientists that look into it, and it's really hard to find out what actually happens because they couldn't you know they couldn't find out that it was it transcended the blood brain barrier until they did these brain scans of women who had died. So it's quite um, it's absolutely difficult. extraordinary as an idea. I must have quite a fair bit yeah, of male you've got DNA. Five, five, five different male <laughs> DNAs. So so we're all like just this mix of beings, which is I I, I just think that that was like. Like the kind of creative in me is like, wow, that's so just brings it all full circle. And, you know, we're all a mix of everything, influences from day to day, from nature and nurture. Yeah. And I just, I love it. Yeah. And like the, the sort of complexity of nature and what it's capable of doing mm-hmm. and how it operates, like endlessly fascinating. Yeah. And no, I wonder, you, were you always scientific from when you were small? Has there always been something that's interested you? I've always been fascinated by the way people and humans behave and why we do what we do and kind of the reasons behind that so I studied psychology um then I wanted you know I've always wanted to be a writer so I've had these kind of two competing creative notions and I was like oh I could just go into journalism um but then I started in news and news was really depressing like it's really good at teaching you very quickly to broadcast or to write um really important things and to get the facts right but you know you move on from story to story you're telling kind of really grim grim things uh, happening and so I was like I need to get into features and so that was just really um, quite lucky that at the time there was a science reporter bursary at the BBC, so I was ready in the BBC at this point. Um, and I, 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 because I'd done a psychology degree and I'd had a few years' experience, I was eligible to apply. Um, and I just researched so much that when the time the interview came around, I really, really knew my stuff, even stuff like some kind of astrophysics bits. I'd been watching, you know, lots of Brian Cox documentaries. So it gave me like a really well-rounded um, way of talking about lots of things that I didn't know much about before and that's what they wanted I thought I was faking it like so many women do I was like oh but they don't know I'm just a fraud but actually they you, you're not expected to be an expert in physics and biology you're expected to be able to tell it in a compelling way so that people understand and that is what I'd shown I could do and then it's just such an amazing experience where I was thrust into writing um, for the web reporting on tv reporting on radio and I was like this is where I want to stay you know you get access to the top the world's top scientists you can ask them any question you want you can just like you know sim- like you don't want to ask too complex questions and then you you tell the stories in a way people understand and I just got addicted to it, I think but I've always gravitated to stuff about like human behavior and why we do what we do and how we think why we think way the way we do and how that shapes us. I've always been, um, that's kind of my passion points. Yeah, that is, is like endlessly interesting, basically. Exactly. Um, there's, there's so much to keep exploring. And as you say, like being able to access talking to all these experts and just getting it all together and pulling together the story, that is that is really interesting. Um, and how do you find it? Because um, you've got quite a big family in the Netherlands. How do you find it being here? Are there, I imagine your childhood would might have been a bit different to the one that your kids are having. Very, very different, yeah. I grew up on this tiny, um, quite idyllic island called Tessel, which is off the north coast of Holland, um, for the first six years, and then moved to Scotland. Um, so I've been away from the Netherlands for a long, long time, so I'm quite used to it. And I, you know, English is now my better language. And I'm, you know, I write for a living. Um, so it would be difficult to, like, I feel, I feel like a child when I'm in the Netherlands in some way in terms of my language. Um, but I still, it's so close and so quick to get there. Both my brothers live there now, all my cousins, and it's just really nice to be able to go there a couple of times a year. See, um, I still feel really at home there because I still feel that that's like a, a big part of my identity. Um, but you know, now I have a 
British husbands and uh, husband and British husbands, <laughs> British husband and British kids. Um, so I don't I don't see myself going back there anytime soon. But I I like that it's close enough that I can still feel this great connection. And I'm trying to you know teach my kids Dutch so that they have this ability um, to connect when they're older. And they they love it now. You know my eldest is always like she she tells people at school, oh do you know that I speak Dutch? She'll say and like she's really proud of it. And I've told her it's like you know her secret weapon. So I think kind of being able to continue that even if I'm not there is really important yeah that's lovely I always think um raising your kids bilingual is an incredible gift to give them absolutely amazing I would love to have another language under mm-hmm. my belt it's lovely um so if you moved home when you were six do you think that's quite a significant thing to up, uproot and start again somewhere else I think when you do it that young it's kind of an opportunity and an adventure so I remember being really excited about it um because you're you're young enough that you haven't built up like those really kind of strong connections like in a way a teenager might um and I just remember being like thinking it was like really fun that I was going to this new place and learning a new language um and it also like it meant that I've got this like really idyllic view of what my childhood was like even though you know I mean childhood is magical in many ways but I remember those six years really well because when there's a division you kind of have better memories of it because you have a, a way to define this the, the before and the after and then because my parents stayed friends with the kids that I grew up with I still know them so one of my um, good friends Frauke she um, had a baby six days after me. She, her mum is my godmother. We literally grew up together. Um, and so we've like gotten close, even though we don't see each other that often, we've gotten closer because we, you know, we were going through motherhood at the exact same time and we grew up together. So it's like another kind of really poetic, poetic connection. And then there's, you know, another group of three sisters who I grew up with and I, I know their kids now and we, we still keep in contact. We have like a WhatsApp group where we chat. So it's like a really special part of growing up and I think because um I still felt connected to the Netherlands in some way I'm still friends with them which is like quite it's quite rare to be friends with people you've literally known from birth yeah that's um, lovely no you're yeah. right I don't, I don't think there's many people that do know people that yeah. long or if you do it's maybe someone you might like see once in a while but mm. you know to keep it so present is really is really lovely um well going back to your book what and, and, and your or your research what would be do you think a really helpful thing that people could do or to help mothers I know you're you're not on the campaigning side but it must have made you think what would be helpful for sure um well I think so I wrote a chapter about motherhood guilt and I think that's one of the lasting things that I think we can have lots of take-homes from so guilt is kind of steeped into the idea of what motherhood is we feel guilty when um, we're working too much we don't see our kids enough we feel guilty when um, we put our careers on hold because we're like oh should I be working should my kids see me working should I be contributing to the family um, or like we feel guilty so every set everything we do if we give them sweets we feel bad if they're watching too much screen time and it's kind of like it's such a pervasive I intrinsic feeling that I think is also tied to motherhood in a really unhealthy way um, and actually when I was researching it and speaking to these academics about it I realized that I just it made me stop or understand why it was happening in a way that made me be able to let go and like one of the biggest things is childcare as well people feel really bad about sending their kids to childcare because there's this like idea that a mother's care is best but that's absolutely not true like motherhood parental burnout is more prevalent among stay-at-home mothers than Um, working mothers and the reason why that is is because we have these ideas of what we should be doing all the time the kind of perfectionism and you can't do that for 
12 hours a day and have a life and do the admin and the housework and depending on how much help you have of course um and so it's it's easier to like very quickly be at your you know the end of your stress levels if you're home all day I always like liken it to a curve when I'm when I see my kids for an hour in the morning my love level is like really high um at the end of the day after spending 12 hours with them obviously the love's still there but my ability to like put up with the whining and the patience is really really low and so the graph of like your happiness and stress levels goes like declines throughout the day when you're with your kids all day um if your kids are like mine anyway whereas when I'm at work my mood kind of stays similar I don't have the same highs I'm not like oh I love you guys in the same way you know <laughs> to my colleagues that'd be a bit weird um but it, it you don't have those ups and downs of emotions because there's not somebody constantly tugging at you and calling your name and asking you like you know like it's it's as you know it's like literally every second you're being asked to do something or being um re- requested or being moaned at and the snacks and it, it's it can feel quite relentless and then that's why I don't feel guilty about sending the childcare because I know they're actually having a better experience there than the me that they'd get because it's just impossible to be like perfect all day long so I think that's massively helped and I think um let, letting go of some of that guilt obviously this is the child care has to be high quality and we're lucky that in the UK a lot of child child care is really good it's well regulated same is not true for um the US sadly but it it's and it, it helps me be a better mother as well because I know that I'm better for working and putting myself first and then obviously you know lots of people have to work so it's it's not a choice people have as well so then the guilt feels even more difficult so I think that's my main my main take home is it's okay to put yourself first and it's okay to feel guilty just understand that it's like ingrained into motherhood rather than something that any that you're doing wrong yeah I think that's so true that's such a massive thing that mum guilt and as you say I mean I suppose there must have been times when you're writing a book and thinking Oh, I feel a bit bad now. I've got to go, and then like, what am I doing? I'm literally <laughs> writing about my other guilt. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did feel bad because, like, you know, I was like, oh, I'm not taking him to any of these baby classes. But then I also realised that those classes are usually for the parents, not the kids, because a three month old doesn't need stimulation. Like, that's another thing I, I think that was that does have important take homes. Like, we're obsessed with like enrichment for our children mm. and giving them stimulating activities, like giving them the black and white toys, and you know, making sure that they're learning at every step of the way. That's just giving us more stress, and our kids don't need it and it's setting them up for this like hyper overachievement um society where we put emphasis on all the wrong skills like like a heightened focus on academia actually is a huge reason for anxiety in children and it's not healthy it's not the best way to learn and so um like i i don't and it's quite a dutch thing as well like i don't sit down and play with my kids that often because i want them to be able to be independent and learn to play themselves like obviously i get involved if they ask or if they need help but i'd rather and also i'm i'm really busy i'm like you know cooking for them or doing something so i don't have the time um but actually constantly micromanaging their free time and their activities is doing them a disservice yeah. so it's really good for them to be bored and to like come up with their own solutions so that's another like huge take home that helped me feel less guilty and gave me more time to then focus on like the book and um yeah the the things that I think are actually important for kids that's so true everything you just said I think some of that come by having lots of kids I've sort of by default I cannot be all things to all people like you just literally have to say look I'm doing this you have to go and sort something and um I think as well sometimes because people are tending to have their 
children later than they used to. They're in a different bracket of their lives where sometimes they put all these investments into their kids expecting certain outcomes to happen as a result of it. So I think sometimes that kind of giving them, as you say, lots of enrichment things and filling out their world. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an expectation there, isn't there, that you're, that you're going to be great at tennis and you're going to be really good at chess and you're going to have all these extra things you can do that are really across the board. But actually, when you listen to your kids and they say, I'm not really enjoying that, but I really like this, and just focus on the bits that come from them, then I think, generally speaking, is less pressure on you, but also it'll probably flourish easier because yeah. you're not pushing that boulder all the time. Yeah. But then this is a conversation I have lots of times with Richard, so they're kind of, I'm quite chilled about all that but then sometimes I do feel like should yeah. I be doing more but think about where the pressure's coming from like why are you sending like wh- whose decision was it to send to gymnastics was it because the mum down the road did and you're like oh I should be doing that because there's a long waiting list or they should be learning swimming an hour or they need to get better at maths like it's usually outside pressures that are yeah. like that think that you're already behind in some invisible race um, and then, yeah, I think, I, and I, I fall into the same traps and we can't help it. We're a product of our society. Um, but just knowing that it's like, okay, well, maybe that's not best for my kid. That's, you know, sending them to d- ballet at three isn't, it's great for letting off some steam. But if you're then having to like leave work early and rush about in rush hour and ship them from activity to the next, like that's not doing yourself any favours. And yeah, they might enjoy it, but equally they'll love running around outside as well. Yeah, Definitely. And and finally, how how has everything you've been doing changed? Has it affected your relationship with your mum, given that her diaries were so much a part of it? Uh, I would say I definitely I th- I'm much more aware of how challenging it would have been for her because she had she she had, she had three kids, and my brother and I were like fourteen months no sixteen months apart, and apparently like she couldn't leave us alone together. He would push me off like tables he was like really jealous when I was born it was like testing boundaries it wasn't you know maliciously intended and so I think I appreciate how stressful that was and a level that I used to kind of think it was funny hearing these stories and I'm like okay wow and then also she had a really um I think my brother came out blue and couldn't breathe and I think he was was he breached anyway she had a really traumatic birth and again it was just it seemed like a really distant story and now I'm like wow okay that was a really important moment for you um I've definitely I, I definitely listen to a lot of her advice on certain things, but she's also of, I, d- I don't know if it's a generational thing, but like things like, oh, you were all potty trained 18 months and um, you shouldn't, like the, the little tiny pieces of well-meant advice, I am quite good at just taking and leaving and being like, well, <laughs> you did that, that's fine, but I'm not going to do it she that way. She might be misremembering a little <laughs> I bit. think so, yeah, she said I never had tantrums. Although apparently I did sleep through from 12 weeks, so I have no idea how that happened but um there's there's actual published <laughs> evidence to show that dutch kids sleep better than other kids around the world really and it's to do with kind of like a much more relaxing environment that's built on like routine not routine as in militant like i'm going to make you do things at the right time but just it's built into kind of society that wow. certain things happen at certain times and it gives this really very like, natural natural structure so may- maybe that that part you know but then uh, you know i didn't really learn from that because my kids didn't sleep <laughs> No, I think you'll get what you're given with that, actually. Yeah. I mean, my kids have all got different sleep exactly. personalities. On, yeah. yeah. If you were to stand on a table next to your brother now, would you still try and push you off? 
He would not, no, no, exactly. We are, we're really close. He's got two young kids as well, and we, we talk about parenting a lot now. Oh, that's nice. It's funny, isn't it, how it all turns? Yeah, it's for a full circle, exactly. And I was, you know, we were at loggerheads all the time, but it was really nice having, like, a close companion growing up as well. Yeah, best of times, worst of times. It's always the way with all the busy household stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you so much, Melissa. Honestly, so much, and I'll definitely be letting everybody know about your book and oh, all your... You documentary stuff because it's completely fascinating yeah i think everybody's gonna love it well thanks for having me it's been great oh so brilliant wasn't that i mean i just thought there were so many things that were interesting about what melissa said and i realized i didn't warn you about the shower description of what happened to her but i did put it in the blurb so hopefully you saw that already and you're not cross with me that you listened to that without any warning. Um, but I do think... Uh, I, I love I love Melissa's perspective on things and I find it an endlessly fascinating topic anyway, as you know, about all the changes and how it can affect people. So uh, I love talking to her and I could have talked to her for a lot longer. And there's an extra bit of... That's quite a nice serendipity. After Melissa and I stopped our chat, she went off to work where she works alongside one of my oldest friends. It's a girl called Becca Lawrence who also works at BBC. And um, yeah, the, the BBC building's huge. So I've when I meet people who work at the BBC building in Wood Lane, I've stopped saying, oh, do you know my friend Becca? Because there's like 600 people who work there. And actually she did know her and does know her and they work alongside each other. So that was nice for me. I've known Becca since I was 11. So that's really cute. Uh, yeah, I I think Melissa is definitely somebody to watch in terms of really interesting scientific um, documentary making and book writing. I think there's a lot of scope with what she's uncovering and it's, it's really interesting seeing her join up all the dots of all the studies and uh, yeah, I can't wait to see what she does next. And in the meantime, I want to thank as well Claire Jones and Richard Jones, so husband and uh husband Richard and producer Claire because due to the boating trip I was really last minute about getting over uh, notes for the podcast so thank you to both of them for doing a very quick turnaround job on a Friday which is also a bank holiday so much appreciated to them I tried to be a bit organized but recently I've been really relaxed about it and maybe they're not feeling quite as relaxed I don't know thank you to them both but mainly of course thank you to you for lending me your ears and Please do continue to leave comments because I read everything that you put after the podcast. And if you've ever got anyone you'd like me to speak to or someone you think I should know about, then please, please, please do send me their way because, as I've said before, a lot of the people I end up speaking to are people that have been recommended to me. And it's good for me to to think outside of my, my own perspective on life. So I, I've loved meeting some really interesting people that have been suggested to me. It's been great. And what else happens today? Well, I've still got to go and pack for the festival. And uh, the sun is shining right now, so I hope it holds. I've done two festivals already. First one, rained. Second one, sun. And it will come as no surprise to you. It's much nicer playing to people in sunglasses than kugels. Anyway, um, I hope you've had a nice bank holiday week, uh, weekend, uh, if that was happening to you in the UK. And if it wasn't, then I just hope you had a nice weekend. (laughs) And I will see you same time next week with more lovely chit-chats. But in the meantime, take care of yourselves. Lots of love, Susan.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.